How many would agree that God has been merciful to you? God is merciful, He is gracious, He is compassionate. He is forgiving to thousands and ten thousands of generations. It's difficult sometimes for us to comprehend His grace, His mercy, His provision. As we see Him interacting with his people. He calls Israel into existence. And then he begins his miraculous program using Israel. We see the wonder. You stand back and you just say, my, what an awesome, awesome God. In the, our passage this morning, we're going to look at the first 16 verses of chapter 13. God has given, and we're going to see the third of three, God has given three rituals, if you will, three feasts, three um, mechanisms whereby they can, his people, can respond to his mercy. They're designed by him, given to them. They're not left to their own devices. You and I, in responding to God's mercy, are not left to our own devices. God, too, has given us a means. He's given us direction in how we should properly respond to his mercy and to his grace. In Romans chapter 12, we read those first two verses. The Apostle Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's wrath. Right? No, what's the word? Mercy. Mercy. And the idea there is, is keep it in view. And this is the reason for these festivals and these rituals that God would give Israel was that they were to keep in view. They were designed so the people would rehearse again and again and again God's grace and mercy and provision and his deliverance for them. And you and I are... Uh, to keep in view his mercy to us. And as we keep in view his mercy, then we are more likely than not to be willing to offer our bodies as what? Living sacrifices. Living sacrifices as opposed to dead sacrifices. The problem uh, is said with a living sacrifice, as soon as you get it on the altar, it wants to wiggle off. How many of us have said, yes, Lord, we volunteer in the, in the heat of the moment, in the enthusiasm of the moment, and then later on we think it through again and say, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure. I didn't really count the cost here. A living sacrifice. That word sacrifice is scary. Because implicit in it is the understanding that you are a sacrifice. Go beyond just what's easy and comfortable. Many will respond and say, well, you know, I, I really, I really want to really go for it with God, but, but I just know if I jump in with both feet, I just know, I just know he'll make me a missionary. <laughs> and I know that I'll have to eat bugs. <laughs> Beloved, God would never, ever call you to be a missionary unless he first put it in your heart. And that you must 
do that. Keep in view His mercy that you might offer your body as a living sacrifice. And when He uses the term body, it's a figure of speech by metonymy. means all that you are. Everything that you are. As a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is how we worship God with our entire life. Every area. We don't compartmentalize things and just leave worship just for Sunday morning. It's everything that I do. The Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, he says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Do it as an expression of worship. If I'm a student and I'm going to school, I do my schoolwork as unto the Lord. I know that's hard to conceive of sometimes. If I'm a parent, I'm a parent as unto the Lord. If I'm a husband, I'm a husband as unto the Lord. If I'm a wife, I'm a wife as unto the Lord. If I'm an employer, I'm an employer as unto the Lord. As an employee, I'm an employee as unto the Lord. Paul says we're not working for men, we're working for God. All that we do. In verse 2 of that passage, he tells us, and do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. You see, if I am living my life as a, as a living sacrifice, truly, because I have in view His mercy to me, then I'm less apt to be in the world, to be of the world. I'm more apt to not let the world squeeze me into its mold any longer. I have whole different, whole different uh, priorities for my life. So as God has given Israel a methodology, if you will, to respond to his grace, appropriately so, he's given us also a means whereby we can respond to his grace. Now if you'll just read with me the first 16 verses of chapter 13, there's some things in here I want to talk to you about and put some perspective on it for you. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. And then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day. The day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your sons, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you a sign on your hand, a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. 
All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. If you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean, say to him, with a mighty hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. In the earlier chapter, chapter 12, we saw God deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt. The angel had come and uh, the tenth plague fell on Egypt, the plague of the death of the firstborn, all of Egypt. That tenth plague, among other things, was literally a payback. A payback to, uh, for Pharaoh's decree to kill uh, the firstborn males, or the, uh, the males, all the male children of the Israelites back in chapter 1. And many of those male children were indeed the firstborn of Israel, which were holy to the Lord, belonged to the Lord. The tenth plague was also God exercising his divine right over the firstborn, both the firstborn of Egypt and the firstborn of Israel. God owns everything, does he not? Sometimes I think we lose sight of that. Certainly our culture and our world has lost sight of the fact that God owns everything. The gods of Egypt, it was taught, always claimed the firstborn of Egypt for their own. And in God's action in that tenth plague, he is demonstrating that the gods of Egypt have really no power, that he is the God of all, and he claims the firstborn, not only of Israel, but he claims the firstborn of Egypt for his own. He may do with them as he pleases. God wants the first from believers today. He wants the first from believers today. Many believers do not give God first place in their life. Tragically, many will give God second place, third place, or even last place. He claims our very best. He claims the first in everything. Because he's worthy, because he's God. And even though he claims first place in our lives, many do not. Many do not acknowledge him in all of their ways. Many do not seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Many, quite frankly, relegate God to somewhere down the line in their, in their list of priorities in their life as they live their life. Our culture is very self-absorbed. Our, our culture is very self-focused. It's all about us. It's what I want, when I want, how I want. In effect, there are many professing Christians who simply pay lip service to God. They don't put him first, they put him last. And in effect, they live their lives in practical unbelief. They practice unbelief. They may admit, they may say, I believe, but in reality, the way they live their life, there's a, there's a, 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 a difference it's practical unbelief. 
Now, the children of Israel had just come out of generations of slavery in Egypt. The account says that they were in Egypt for 430 years. Initially, under Jacob, or under, uh, 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 Jacob, and then Joseph's reign, and they grew up as a nation, but roughly the last 200 plus years of their sojourn in Egypt were as slaves. A pharaoh grew up who knew not Joseph and enslaved the Israelites. And so they come out of uh, generations of slavery. God just releases them. And no sooner does God release them than he immediately requires of them their firstborn. This is a statement of trust and allegiance. This is an acknowledgement that they belong to God through the firstborn. They've come out. God has redeemed them. He's set them free. I can imagine uh, many of the Israelites probably thought or at least said, uh, look, Lord, you've just delivered us out of slavery and now you're claiming our firstborn for your own. The Lord Jesus does the same thing. He delivers us out of slavery. How many are glad for that? Slave market of sin. He set us free. He set us free, and as soon as he set us free, he's claimed us for himself. The Bible says we've been bought with a price. We do not belong to ourselves. That may come as a surprise to some. But we belong to him. And he's claimed us for himself. And we are now free, as believers, we are now free to give ourselves to him. We are now free, actually, to obey him. We are now free to serve him, amazingly. Whereas before, we were not. When we were slaves to sin, when we were locked up in the domain of darkness, it took God to rescue us. When we were helpless and hopeless, truly, we had no hope, no, no uh, absolute uh, conviction, we were lost. No confidence. But now we're free to give ourselves to him. And that's where the true blessing lies. The true blessing lies when we give ourselves to him and we put him first. Now you say, well, what's the blessing? Do I get a pink Cadillac? No. It's not a pink Cadillac that's the blessing. The blessing is now for the first time in your life you can know that you have peace with God, and you can know the peace of God. For the first time in your life, you can know His love. The Bible says that God, by the Holy Spirit that He puts in us, pours His love into our hearts. We can know love for the first time. We can know peace and genuine joy. We ought to be the happiest people on earth. Do you know that? Not because of our circumstances, but because of what God has done and the great hope, the great confidence that we have. We ought to be the happiest people on earth. There ought to be a perpetual smile on our faces. We ought to be walking around going, whoa, this is incredible. The blessing lies in giving ourselves to him and putting him first. Lord, you're number one in my life. I'm going to live my life for your glory. Everything I do, I want you to be glorified by it. I want you to be exalted. I want you to be pleased. I want to brag on you, God, by how I live my life. There's nothing greater than that. We get a taste of it when we, just in our own temporal human relationships, 
when we want someone to be proud of us and, and when they smile upon us and, and we, see, we feel so good. The analogy breaks down, however, because God is always smiling at us. He loves us beyond measure. And if we would just trust him and believe that, there's a miracle that happens right in there. Now, as we talked about the Passover, Passover was not simply a matter of a lamb replacing the Israelite firstborn. It was God purchasing. Purchasing, so to speak, the redemption of his firstborn son Israel through the death of the Egyptian firstborn. Because it was precisely that catastrophe that caused Pharaoh to release Israel. Pharaoh would never have released Israel had not the firstborn of Egypt been killed. But it was really God purchasing his own children. He was making a payment, if you will, to Pharaoh to set his people free. In Exodus chapter 4, God announced to Moses that Israel would be his firstborn son. And it was this that gave meaning to that tenth plague. God delivered his own son from certain death. Not simply by just picking them up and carrying them out of Egypt, though he could have done that. No, their redemption would not be without a price. A sacrifice would have to be made. The firstborn of Egypt will die. And only those under the blood would escape. Only those under the blood. Now, would you agree with me that everyone, everyone falls short? All fall short of the glory of God? That means all of Egypt and all of Israel. Would you agree with me from that perspective then they all deserve to die because the wages of sin is death. That's the pronouncement. And if we would, if we would consider genuine justice in, in the righteousness of God, God would be unrighteous. He would be in effect capricious or whimsical if he did not if he was not consistent with his character, injustice were not served. And so from that perspective, all deserve to die because all are sinners. And no human being, in and of him or herself, can do that which would please God, can do that which would obey God in order to escape the demand for justice and escape punishment. This is very, very important. So the firstborn of Egypt would have to die. And only those under the blood then would escape this punishment. But there is a sacrifice for them. Now if the tenth plague and the deliverance from Egypt are that important, they are now to be remembered and they're to be seared in the memories of the Israelites for generations to come. God means for them to remember what he has done for them generation after generation after generation. And this was to be done by the yearly celebration of the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Israelites must never, ever forget 
what God had done. Just like you and I, we must never, ever forget what God has done for us. They must never forget these things. And they must never forget the terrible means by which their redemption resulted. The cost. And the sacrifice of that Passover lamb was to be a constant reminder to Israel that their life came from death. Beloved, yours and mine life, our eternal life, our hope forever and ever and ever has arisen because there was a death for us. We dare not ever forget that. They must also remember that the firstborn belong to God. And he may do with the firstborn as he pleases. Question. Is it only the firstborn that belong to God? No. Psalm 24, verse 1, tells us that the earth belongs to the Lord. All the earth contains belongs to him. The firstborn represent the whole. Just like all of Israel or all of Egypt, the sentence was death for sin, the firstborn would represent the death of all. Now, remember that the, the, the destroying angel, his mission was blind to ethnic distinctions. Had an Israelite family not painted its doorway with the lamb's blood, that destroying angel would have killed the firstborn of that family also. It was on the basis of the blood and only on that basis that the destroyer made the distinction between Israel and Egypt. There is no difference. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. But we are saved by the blood of the Lamb applied to our hearts by faith. That's the difference. And God loves his creation. He wants, doesn't want any to perish. He wants all to come to a saving knowledge. He wants all to come to repentance. The question is, will they? God had the right to express his ownership over Israel by killing their firstborn as well. He provided a route of escape for them, however. You see, this is the full understanding of what it means for the firstborn to belong to God. Every firstborn belonged to him. And he, he is absolutely sovereign. Now, both the death of the Egyptian firstborn and the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, both of those symbolize two things. One, God's ownership of the firstborn and his provision to protect his own firstborn, Israel. They're very, very important symbols. The death of the firstborn, he, he, he owns it all. Now, the point of all this is simply this. These three feasts, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and indeed the consecration of the firstborn, they were all tied together. All three rituals focused on the greatest day in the life of Israel, the day when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. But each ritual focused on one separate feature of God's deliverance. 
Those three rituals were inseparable. They pointed to the same event, but each one of the three focused on one particular truth with respect to God's deliverance. Each was to remind the people of one special truth. The Passover would focus on God's great redemption, his great deliverance. And that deliverance would be for those who would indeed hide behind, hide under the blood of that sacrificial lamb. That's where the deliverance came. It wasn't that the people were good in and of themselves. It wasn't that they could offer uh, good works. It, It was simply God offered deliverance because the lamb that was slain for them saved the firstborn. That's what Passover symbolized. The Feast of Unleavened Bread focused on the necessity now, once they were set free, the Feast of Unleavened Bread focused on the necessity of fleeing Egypt immediately, not delaying, not hanging around. You and I, we understand the the importance of once God has set us free, we flee the old life we used to live. We put off the old and we put on the new that was created for us. And the consecration of the firstborn focused on the utter necessity of dedicating the firstborn to God. And this would symbolize that the whole nation through dedicating the firstborn, the firstborn were a token, if you will, that the whole nation was dedicated to God. They all came, they all dedicated their firstborn sons, symbolic uh, of their dedication to him as a nation. Everything belongs to God, whether it's the firstborn or the firstfruits. They're all representative of everything belonging to God. And to consecrate just literally means to sacrifice, to dedicate. So these sons were to be dedicated to the Lord. Now in verses 3 through 10, he gives the Israelites a number of directions when they enter the land. Now this generation would never enter the land. You know and I know that uh, they disobey God and they're going to wander for 40 years until the whole generation dies off save Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two out of that generation who are going to enter the land. Moses isn't even going to enter the land. And so God gives them instructions. He says, when you enter the land, these are the things you must do to commemorate my deliverance of you from Egypt. They were, first of all, to remember their deliverance. They're to remember God's mercy to them. And again, we too are to keep in view his mercy to us. Every day after, after we've come into salvation, every day we say, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because down deep you understand what he's done for you and you are grateful. So we're to remember just as they were to remember. They were to eat only unleavened bread. Remember leaven or yeast represented corruption or evil. And this symbolizes that as believers, we are also to allow no evil in our lives. We're not to eat unleavened bread in the sense of partaking of evil. 
We're to flee the old way and, and, and embrace God's new life. They're to remember the very day and month of God's great deliverance for them. And we indeed should certainly remember our day of salvation. I remember the very day. I remember the very place I was when I, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I was uh, reminded of uh, C.S. Lewis and his, even his identification of when he put his faith in Christ. And he'd been in a, in a, in a long intellectual struggle of just believing there was a God. And he remarks in, in, in one of his books that he's, he was with his brother and they were going on a picnic and his brother was riding, driving a motorcycle. He was in the sidecar, not thinking particularly about anything and he'd already come to believe there was a God. But he remarked that when he was in the sidecar on the way to their picnic, he believed in Jesus. The marvel of the work of God in his life, and all of a sudden, it's just like everything fell in place, it all made sense, he put his faith in Jesus Christ. But he could remember the very hour and the very place, the very day when he received Christ. There's a point of demarcation in our life. When I left the old life, when I was delivered from the old way of living, when the old futilities of the hopelessness and then I entered a new life where now I genuinely have hope. It's not that I just became another religious person and I live out some, some arbitrary belief system. It's the reality that I know that God has come into my life and he's changed me. My appetites are different. He's given me a new life. He's given me new appetites. It's not something that I had to work up myself. Whereas before I had a bent away from God, now I have, a, I have a bent towards God. I have an inclination towards God and the things of God. I mean, if you'd have told me before I became a Christian I'd be a pastor, I'd have just... I, I couldn't even have laughed. It's so absurd. People that knew me before I became a Christian, if you told them he's going to be a pastor, they'd... You're out of your mind. But here I stand before you today. Amazing. Amazing grace. They were to eat unleavened bread for seven days. The number seven is, is interesting because symbolically it pictures completion. The seven days of creation. God said it is very good. It's complete. So seven represents completion. They were to eat unleavened bread for seven days. The picture there for us, symbolically, is that we are to live our complete lives, not partaking of that which is corrupt into our life, but rather eating the bread of righteousness. Marvelous picture there. They were to worship on the seventh day. We too are to set aside a day. One day out of the week in which we rest, just as God had rested. They were to take that seventh day out of that, of that seven days and they were to devote it to the Lord in terms of having a festival. Lord, our, our, our day of rest, 
Our Sabbath, if you will, is meant to be a festival to the Lord in our own hearts. It's a day, uh, as Eugene Peterson, one of the authors I like to read, he says it's a day to pray and a day to play. Isn't that a marvelous picture? A day to pray and a day to play. Playing really is a form of rest. It's a rest from our labor. Sometimes we just think of rest as, you know, sleeping, which most of us would want to do anyway. Verse 7, he tells them that yeast or leaven was not to be not only not eaten, it was not to be found anywhere that they were present. Nowhere in their environment was yeast or leaven to be even found, to be seen. The picture there is that we are to avoid all possible contamination. You say, how is that possible? We, we, just, we live with it every, all around us everywhere. Yes, but you do not have to take it in. You do not have to. You do not have to. You can separate yourself from contamination. You can live in the midst of it and yet not touch it. Later on, the Jews would become so conscientious about this particular ordinance uh, of avoiding all forms of um, yeast or leaven in their, in their district, in their midst, that they would indeed light candles and they would search through the cracks and the crevices of their homes, under their furniture, behind their furniture. They would look everywhere, every place trying to make absolutely sure there was no yeast in their house. What a lesson for us, I think, in searching out the evil in our lives. We must search ever so diligently to make sure that we give no place to evil, no place to corruption. And that is a constant battle, isn't it? Because after all, we are still yet weak. We're still yet susceptible. But we can search these things out. We say, you know, this doesn't need to be in my life. This doesn't need to be in my life. This is not the best influence. Because you just look at the fruit of these things. When the light of God's word and his spirit expose sin in us, as they surely do, our response then is to confess it and repent of it, repudiate it, put it, put it away, get rid of it. God shows us something. Oh, I never saw that before. Or I didn't want to see it before. And he makes it very obvious. And we go, all right, I don't need that. Out, out, out of my life. That's our response. We must get all evil out of our lives and we must get all evil out of our homes. Verse 8, he says, share your testimony with your children. Tell your children how and from what God has delivered you. My testimony to my own son has been of of my wasted years, profligate years, time, energy, money, resources, intelligence, all wasted. And how I've grieved over that and wished if I'd only, only given my life to the Lord earlier. I know many of you can probably relate. And you look back and you say, what a waste why did, I, why did I just have to start serving the Lord in my 30s? 
Why not in my early teens or yet even before that? And I would tell him, I said, don't waste your life. I do not want you to waste your life like I did. You have a tremendous head start, a tremendous heritage. Telling him what I was saved from and how grateful I am. Telling him why and how I worship God. What's the importance of being in the Word? What's the importance of gathering together and worshiping God with His body? What's the importance of these things? This is why we do this. And impressing upon Him. So that He, being the next generation, if you will, of the church, has a much richer, deeper heritage than I ever had. Share your testimony with your children. Verse 9, he says, this ritual was to be a sign on their hand. It was to be a reminder on their forehead that the law of the Lord was to be on their lips. Beautiful figurative language. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be an identification. It was to be the mark of who the Israelites were, or better yet, whose they were. Who do you and I belong to? Who have we committed to? You see, their identity now would be a function of what God had done for them. Their whole idea would be, their whole identity would be derived from not only God, but what He had done from them. And you and I, our identity is derived from what God has done for us. God has saved us. We owe Him everything. We belong to Him. Their whole life, as evidenced by, by the symbols of their body, their, their forehead, their hand, their lips, their whole life was to be totally given over to God. They were to commit themselves totally to Him. That was the picture. In those pagan cultures that, they, that were, were in existence in those days, and even today, people would often mark themselves, they would brand themselves, they would tattoo themselves on the hand or some other part of the body with the name or the symbol of the God that they worshipped. That happens today. People get their identity. They, they identify and they mark themselves different ways. This is why the Old Testament says don't mark your bodies. Don't tattoo your bodies. Because it's symbolic of what you, where your identity comes from, what you stand for. Sometimes people wore... A, a sacred badge, or they had a, some kind of a jewel ornament on their forehead as a symbol of the devotion to their God. These were common ancient practices. But for the Israelites, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, not tattoos, not marks, not other external symbols, those two feasts were to serve as their identification with their God. The fact that they practiced these things, this was where their identification came from. God has given us two ordinances, has he not? Two ordinances whereby we identify with him in a tangible, external way. What are the two ordinances? Baptism and communion. In baptism, you're baptized one time. You don't need to be baptized again and again and again. You're baptized one time. What's that all about? That's about your publicly identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. 
When you say, I'm a Christian, I identify with Christ. The Bible says that I died with him, I was buried with him, and I was raised to new life with him. The identity is so close. This is what it means to be in Christ, the expression the Apostle Paul uses. And, and so we identify publicly with Jesus Christ. And all that happened to him happens to us. And secondly, communion is the second ordinance whereby we repeat over and over and over all that we believe. We remember Christ in his death, but we also remember that we died with him. We remember that he is coming again, and we look forward to being with him. And so through those two ordinances that are given to the church, we remember and celebrate and identify. These are our statements so that people know and we know that we are indeed Christians. It's interesting that later in Israel's history, during the time of Daniel, known as the Babylonian captivity, the Jews developed a practice of taking these verses, uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 16 we just read, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 11, some verses out of those passages, which basically duplicate this passage in Exodus. They would take those verses and they'd write them on small pieces of parchment, and then they would put those, those, those uh, passages in little leather boxes. Then they would strap those leather boxes to their forehead and to their arm, and they would wear them during daily prayer. See, they would take literally this verse that they are to have God's word on their forehead, wear it on their hand, and when in reality God's word was not to be contained in a box, it was to actually activate their lips. It was to activate their hearts. It was to activate their hands. But the Jews practiced this external symbolic exercise when in fact they did not at all follow God's word. And Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 5, in effect castigates them for their practice of using these little boxes. They were called phylacteries. Many of you know that. But by extension, our hands... Our hands are to be used only for righteousness, never unrighteousness. Our eyes are only to be on that which is moral and pure and holy and righteous, never immoral and unrighteous. Our mouth only to be used for righteousness and for truth, never unrighteousness and falsehood. Recall what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard that it said that do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye, right eye, causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Do you think he was serious about that? Well, he was, just, he was just using a figure of speech. He was using hyperbole, right, to, to really express something. You know, I, I think that he was really serious. This is how serious we need to be about keeping our head going straight, our eyes straight, our mind focused on that which is pure, and our hands given not to unrighteousness but to righteousness. This is how important it is to God. The question is, do we think it's that important? Not just symbolic. This is, this is bottom line stuff. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 25. 
Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Fix your gaze directly. You don't look to the left or to the right. Fix your eyes straight ahead. Right, men? How many men know what I'm talking about? Psalm 34, 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Again, the rehearsal of these same truths. In verses 11 through 16, God was to be honored. He was to be honored again when the people entered the land. Three things were to be done. The first is that the firstborn were to be offered to the Lord. As soon as you enter the land, offer the firstborn to me. Now there were two exceptions to that. The first exception had to do with donkeys. Now donkeys would be, when God gives them the law shortly after the end of the land, donkeys would be uh, classified as unclean animals. An unclean animal could not be sacrificed to the Lord, ceremonially unclean. But it was still, because the Israelites had, had herds of donkeys, the firstborn male donkey was still belonged to the Lord, though it couldn't be offered to him. So the firstborn donkey was to be redeemed by offering to the Lord a lamb, which was an acceptable sacrifice. And God also says, now if for some reason a man does not obey me, does not offer that firstborn donkey or substitute the lamb for it, then the donkey's neck is to be broken. The authorities at that time are to take that donkey and break its neck. The man is not to have use for it. He's not to keep it because it's what? It belongs to God. And so he gives them those ordinances. The second part of that ordinance is that they were to redeem their sons. This is marvelous. The firstborn was to be redeemed. Now we don't know how they were to be redeemed. He doesn't give the instruction right there. We won't know until later on, and more particularly in the book of Numbers, in chapter 18, verse 16, the firstborn son was to be redeemed with five shekels of silver. That was to be brought to the Levites to redeem the firstborn son. Now, because God had saved the lives of the firstborn, he had a rightful claim to them. But he commanded the Israelites to redeem or buy back those sons from him for three reasons. He wanted them to see three things. This was the point of the redemption of these sons. The first reason would be that it would be, again, a reminder to the people. How many know we need to be reminded? All the time. It would, again, this exercise would be a reminder to the people of how God had spared their sons from death. But not only sparing the sons, sparing the whole nation. The fact that they could redeem these sons, these sons were spared once again. They weren't killed. They weren't sacrificed. And the second point he made with respect to this is that God, in contrast to the pagan gods and the pagan religions of the day, had a higher value for human life. The pagan religions required at every point human sacrifice. And God would redeem that which belonged to him. And thirdly, this redemption of the firstborn would look forward to the day when Jesus' death would purchase us from slavery to sin, where we would be redeemed. 
The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Somebody say hallelujah. Well, what was that price? Peter tells us that price was not, we weren't purchased with perishable things such as silver and gold. 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, we were purchased with the precious blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. A price was paid for us. And that price was Jesus, his life. The third thing that the Israelites were to do when they entered the land is the parents. The parents were to instruct their children in all these things. Essentially four things. That God was their deliverer. That God had delivered them. They were to honor God. They were to worship God. They were to thank God. They were to praise God. God delivered them. Beloved, you and I. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Transferred us to the kingdom of his son whom he loves. God has delivered us from slavery. He's delivered us from sin and death. He's delivered us from judgment and hell. Purely because he's merciful. The second thing that the parents were to instruct their children is that they were to seek refuge. They were to seek refuge and salvation under the blood of that lamb. Every year they would sacrifice the Passover lamb. Every year. Not only was it a reminder, but every year it was a token of God's forgiveness to them. And you and I, we seek refuge under the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Not works, not deeds, not heavenly brownie points, simply under the blood of the Lamb. We teach our children these things. We teach our children the reality is that we are sinners. Men are sinners. We try to do our very best, but we always fall short. We can never be perfect in this life. And yet God makes that up for us. The performance gap. God closes that gap for us through Jesus' sacrifice. We teach our children these things so that our children don't grow up frustrated. They grow up hopeful. They grow up with a confident faith that God really is for them and that he is at work actively in them, transforming them. And beloved, if if our kids don't see it reflected in our lives, they're not going to believe it, though we just tell it to them. This This is probably the most important things that we could pass on to our children, is a vital faith, a confidence in the work of God in their life. And then thirdly, we tell our children, as the Israelites were to also, that their response to all that God was doing was to put off the old and to put on the new. That was the picture of the the, uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Put away all corruption out of our lives. Have nothing to do with it. The yeast, the leaven of this world. And fourthly, we're to Teach our children to offer God our very best. Offer God our very best. The first of everything. Not second best, not third best. 
And again, we can tell them and teach them that, but unless they see it in our lives, they're not going to do it. Is God really first in my life? If he is, it's going to be, uh, uh, it's going to be impactful in the, in the lives of my children. They're going to watch me. They're going to listen to me. They're going to observe me. If God really isn't first in my life, he's not going to be first in their life. The Israelites were to teach their children these things. And beloved, you and I are to teach our children these things. It's a terrific responsibility. But God has called us to these responsibilities. God deserves the very best. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. We're told to honor the Lord with the wealth, with the first fruits of our crops. So if you're an Israelite and and living in that agrarian culture, the first fruits were to be brought to the Lord. An expression of our devotion. In Malachi chapter 1, God really speaks to Israel in how they had lost sight of this. In verse 6, God says to them, he says, A son honors his father, a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who despise my name. But you ask, how have we despised your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Even in chapter 3 of Malachi... God says, bring the whole tithe, verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The whole point is, acknowledge me. First, do that. And lastly, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, as I said earlier to you, Paul writes, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. Why? Because of what he has first done for us. That is our only response. God has given Israel those three ordinances. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Consecration of the Firstborn, all to remind them, and as they practiced them, they were responding to what God had done for them. And God gets the glory. Beloved, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to him. This is your spiritual service of worship. And don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You want to know God's will? Turn to him. Turn to him and he'll open the door for you. Amen? God, thank you for your grace to us. We love you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for this book called the Bible. Thank you for the lessons. Thank you for the insights. Lord, thank you that your word is powerful, and that as we read it, we are changed. We are.